you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, let me quickly announce again tonight what I mentioned this morning about uh, our church being able to assemble again. Uh, we are still in the, pro- in the process of making a plan for that. Uh, we are aiming to do this. Well, I, I should say it this way. The earliest we could do it is the 14th of June, but there are several things that need to fall into place for that to happen. And the first thing we need to do is get an idea of how many people want to come out. So Janae has provided a link uh, on Godly Family, that WhatsApp group, also the student WhatsApp group, and it's on our website, bbcpotch.com. If you haven't submitted that already, please click on that link. And it's just two questions. We just need your name, whoever is submitting this uh, request, and then how many people are coming. So just your name and then the number of people that uh, you plan to bring with you. Uh, So you don't need to explain who it would be. We just need that that rough estimate of a number. Uh, And that will allow us to make further plans. Now, as I mentioned this morning, please feel no pressure. Nobody is going to be looking over your shoulder and second guessing your decision. There's no condemnation or judgment that you should feel if you're not comfortable uh, coming out under the current circumstance. I fully understand. And there are several, several regulations that the government has uh, put in place It is going to make these church services feel a little bit awkward, but that doesn't mean that they they can't be useful. So if you're comfortable with it, we will try our our best to make a plan that will will suit everyone. But uh, I would appreciate your participation with going to that link. All right, uh, let's come to Romans chapter 10. And you should have received the outline uh, on the on the WhatsApp group, but for those of you that didn't, let me read it to you quickly tonight. If we just look at Romans chapter 10, I would I would say that this chapter focuses in primarily on the righteousness of God, and then there's three aspects to it. Number one, it is received by faith. Verses one to thirteen, received by faith. Number two, I, I've labeled number two reaching. Through preaching, we reach people by preaching to them, verses 14 and 15, reaching through preaching. And then part three, the last part, rejected by the rebellious, rejected by the rebellious, verses 16 to 21. So before we go any further, I want to give a little bit of of review of what we've been talking about because chapters 9, 10, and 11, I believe, work together. But before we go into that, let's bow our heads, pause for a moment, and pray. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight to study the Word of God. And as we sang, Lord, the Bible does stand. It stands every test. It, Lord, it, uh, no matter how many generations have come and gone, they've never, Lord, there's, there's just never been a problem. The Scripture cannot be broken. It stands true. And I pray that you please... Lord, let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly tonight. Open our eyes, guide us as we study. Meet with us, Father, please. Please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, also, before I forget, your assignments, your second assignment of the year, they are due by next Sunday, June the 7th, which, by the way, will be our last uh, Bible school class. It'll be next Sunday night. But we will continue to have Sunday evening services. We'll just do it on a different subject. But we have a break until halfway through July. So just to remind you of that. All right, now let me also give you just a quick review of what we're looking at in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul is dealing with the question of now that God has this plan that he is, uh, that he is using for the body of Christ and these mysteries of the gospel have been revealed. So God is working with different people at a different time in a different way. What about Israel now? How do they fit into this new plan? Is God completely finished with them? Has God forsaken them completely and just focused on on this new thing, on the body of Christ? What's, What's going on? So in chapter nine, Paul explains how special the people of Israel were, how they were chosen as a nation. It was 
their, their choosing was conditional based on what God knew about the kind of people Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be. It showed how God uh, uses even the wicked, right? Pharaoh, in this case, that God will allow that man to reap what he sowed, but eventually God can even get glory out of that. That's not the way God wants to get glory, but God can even use those wrong decisions. He, he, can, he knows that they're going to happen and makes a plan for it. By the end of the chapter, if you look at the end of chapter 9, you can see how Paul is driving towards this subject of righteousness. Verse 30, do you see it there? Have not attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. I'm sorry, they have attained. Verse 31, but Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. So this, is becomes, this becomes Paul's focus. Israel, they're a chosen nation, and God is not going to change that promise. Through chapter 10, he's going to tell us and explain how righteousness has been made available for everyone. And then by the end of the chapter, he's going to go back to this point of, of Israel and how they rejected this offer of righteousness. So Paul's really taking the end of chapter 9 about how Israel missed out on the righteousness of God, and he expounds upon that throughout chapter 10. And then by the time we get to chapter 11, Paul will focus in on the future of Israel primarily and talk about how one day God is going to graft them back in as a nation and, and save them uh, in a national way. All right, Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now this, this verse is loaded with information actually. Um, there's a lot of good preaching, I think, that comes from this verse. I'm, I'm going to try to limit my comments so that I don't go on too long with it. But there's a lot to it. L let me deal with the more doctrinal aspect behind this verse. If you had any doubts about the deterministic nature of chapter 9. Now, do you understand what I mean by that? Deterministic nature. If you think that God, before the foundation of the world, made a list, right, that He chose certain people to be saved, they're the elect, and that He chose certain people to be lost, that those are the reprobates. If you think God has already decided that, and that the decision is not left to mankind, but the decision was God's, then you would also have to believe that nothing could change the mind of God about that list. God has chosen, who can resist His will, finished and clawed, right? That, that's the end of the discussion. But then the question comes in, why is Paul praying? If God's foreordination if his predetermined plan was to save some and reprobate others, damn others, then we have no business praying about it. It won't make any difference. The fact that Paul is praying that they might be saved, that tells me that we can, through genuine prayer, change the mind of God. We can move the heart of God now, this is not to say that God has ever made a wrong decision or that God want, that He had some sort of inferior plan and man suggested something better and God said, okay, I had that wrong, didn't think about that. It's not that at all. But God takes into account the prayers of an effectual, fer, uh, uh, the effectual fervent prayers right, of a righteous man avails much. How could that be true if you believe that God is of this deterministic nature that He's already planned out every decision we're going to make. Now, those that are determinist, Calvinist, they, they, there are different levels to that. There are three-point Calvinists. There are five-point Calvinists. John Piper is a self-proclaimed seven-point Calvinist. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek there, but he, he does admit that there are a couple of extra points that he uh, believes and teaches that others don't. I realize there's different levels to that determinism and the belief in that. Uh, some believe that God even designed and, and decided every sin that would ever be committed. That is quite a statement to, to 
accuse God of being the author of sin. Whew, that's a tough one, right? How, how do we reconcile that with the holy nature of God? This verse, the simple fact that, that we are able to pray and that factors into the equation tells me a lot about the nature of God. That God is not predetermined every single action and thought and deed that mankind partakes in. Moses proved this. Moses prayed. Remember, God said, I'm going to wipe him out. He prayed and God changed his mind. God's plan to destroy Israel at that point and restart with Moses was a perfectly legitimate plan. But God was moved by what Moses had to say and went with the other plan, the other acceptable plan, and that was mercy at that time. Samuel likewise prayed in his day and age. And God wanted to wipe the people out. Samuel prayed, and God had mercy on the, the nation again. Now, you said, Brother Micah, I, I read those passages differently. But here's the thing. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1. Interesting verse. God himself says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, this generation that you're preaching to, don't even bother praying for them. Because I have decided, they've gone too far. They crossed a line. They have committed this, let's call it this sin unto destruction. Sin unto death, if you will. Which is the same principle here. When you cross the line, sometimes you've gone too far. God has to take action. God said, these people are going into captivity. There's not going to be any peace to this generation. Don't even ask me. He said, God said, even if Moses or Samuel were to pray, not, at this time I wouldn't even listen to them. So that tells me that God himself admitted that those men and their effectual fervent prayers made a difference. So that tells me a lot about the doctrinal and the theological aspect of God, right? The characteristics, the attributes. This verse says a lot, but practically, Paul had a burden for souls. And that desire of his heart, you see that, my heart's desire led to prayer. Knowing, knowing that God is this merciful, long-suffering God, Paul is praying, God, give him another chance. God, use me. Show me what I can do. Make me a vessel, meet for the Master's use. And that's why everywhere Paul went, he tried to reach his kinsmen according to the flesh. We know this. He had a great desire. Do you pray for lost souls? Have you ever prayed anyone into the kingdom, as they say? It's a very, very great verse. Lots of, lots of thinking that needs to be done. Lots of meditating should be done on that. Now, verse 2. For I bear them record, talking about Israel, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So Paul admits that the nation of Israel is very religious and spiritual. They like to talk about God. They go to the temple. They go through the motions. It's not that God is far from their lips far from their hearts, but not far from their lips, not far from their hands. They bring the sacrifices. They, they did all of that religious stuff. The problem was this zeal, this passion that they had was for their traditional version of the law as they saw it and, and how they thought God wanted them to act. They were clinging to that religious form of God rather than submitting to the revealed truth that God had made available through Christ and through the apostles. So they had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They, they weren't working with the knowledge that God had made available. Verse 3, this is what we call a salient verse. It's one of those verses that rises to the top when you study through the Bible. And by the way, chapter 10 is filled with salient verses. Verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness... Watch the comparison. And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you see this simple comparison that Paul makes? The righteousness of God and the righteousness of man. Guys, when you try to win somebody to Christ, this is the issue. This is the issue. If, if I can put it in much simpler terms... Before somebody can get saved, they have to get lost. 
they have to admit that their own righteousness is not enough. Right? This is what every culture, every people group, this is what they seek to do. They make a plan. They create a standard. This is what a good person is. And then they try to live up to that. They say, I'm doing the best I can to be uh, the person I think I should be, the person that society tells me I should be. And you might, you might be striving for that. You might be making a noble effort, but it's not enough. That is your version of righteousness. But what God demands in order for you to dwell in His presence forever, and what God desires so that He can dwell in you right now, He needs more than just your best effort. The Bible says in Psalm 39 that every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Take that man, clean him up, dress him up, make him as good as a man can make a man. And he's not good enough. If a man could make himself good enough, we wouldn't need Jesus to come and die. Right? That's the issue. Before somebody will come to Christ and say, please save me, he has to come to grips with his own depravity, his own sinfulness. He has to admit that he's fallen. Do you see at the end, watch the end of verse 3, very interesting. They have not, it says, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. I find that fascinating. Submitted themselves. Notice how Paul put the word themselves in that. It's their responsibility. Every sinner has the responsibility to humble himself. God is not going to do that for you. What God will do, He sends the Holy Spirit to convict right, the world of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit wants to convince you that because of your sin, you are not righteous enough and you will not pass the judgment. Based on that information, see, God teaches every man. God reveals that, shows that to every man. And then every man has the responsibility to submit himself or herself to the righteousness of God, to say, I'm not good enough, but Jesus Christ is. And I accept Him as the substitute, as, as the Redeemer. He takes my place. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the issue. When it comes to salvation, how can you stand before God and be right enough so that He accepts you? The only way that's possible is for you to be as clean and as holy and as sinless as Jesus Himself. So whenever I witness to people, I always emphasize this. I tell them, listen, at the judgment, God's not going to put all your good on one side and all your bad on the other and weigh them out. That, that's in the Quran, but it's not in the Bible. In the Bible, judgment goes like this. It's you on one side, Jesus on the other, best man wins. That's the standard. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. He's the standard. You see, when we compare ourselves to that, then there's no man that dare say, yeah, compared to Jesus, I'm a good guy. No, not, not at all. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now this end of the law we've spoken of several times now. So I'm not going to re-explain every, everything about the temporal nature of the law. But we've looked at this especially in Colossians 2, verses 14 to 16. Maybe if you want to make notes. Colossians 2, verses 14 to 16. We saw it again this past Wednesday night in Garrett's lesson. Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. Uh, where Paul talks about how the ordinances were blotted out and nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. When Jesus came and fulfilled everything that had been written in the law, that he... He fulfilled all of the law's purpose. The law was meant to bring us to Christ. It had done that. So now, in order to bring the righteousness of God and make it available to the people, the law by itself can't do that. Christ shows up and says, 
Here is where the discussion ends. If you want to know how you can be right enough in God's sight, I have made it available. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And now verse 5, Paul is going to expound on this idea that you get righteousness by faith through believing the promise that God gave through His Son. He's going to, he's going to compare the righteousness of man, verse 5, and then verse 6, 7, and 8, the righteousness of God and how it is received. Verse 5, he says, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. And then he quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Now, I've got to tell you this. From here on out, Paul is on a quotation rampage. I mean, it is one verse after the other that Paul is pulling from the Old Testament. He, come, he takes it from Moses, takes it from Isaiah, comes from Joel. It's all through the rest of the chapter. So we're going to do quite a bit of cross-referencing. We won't look at all the verses, but please know. And this is a good side note for you men that are listening that uh, are called to preach. Every preacher should have in his spiritual arsenal several verses of Scripture that he can just quote and and reference and refer to. That's how you see Paul and the other apostles preaching and writing. It's just their speech is filled with Scripture. So Paul takes Leviticus 18.5 and he says, if you just read that verse, it's a very good description of the righteousness that a man can attain from the law. So that's a man establishing his own righteousness. How can man prove how good he is? He, he tries to keep these laws. The man that doeth, which doeth those things shall live by them. That's what it said in Leviticus 18.5. And in the Old Testament, that's as good as a man could do. They didn't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now the law by itself right, could not give a person life. We've studied that. The book of Galatians made that very clear. But what the law could do Right? If a man in the Old Testament did his level best to keep those laws and he died in that, let's say, on that path of righteousness, then it put him in a position to receive what the Messiah was going to offer. That the Messiah, when he laid down his life so that this man's sins could be taken away, right, that man was in a position to receive what the Messiah could do for him, to wash away his sins and give him life. But verse 5 explains that that's as good as a man can do. Try his best to keep the law. But verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. And now Paul is going to quote a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So I'm going to ask that you go in your Bible to that. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Get that in your left hand, please. Deuteronomy 30. And we're going to begin reading in verse 11. However, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 12, 13, and 14. I am going to read verse 11 with it, just for the sake of some context. Which, by the way, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, that is the attendance code for this evening. All right, Deuteronomy 30. Let's begin reading at verse 11. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. So it's not some mysterious, mystical, abstract thing. This commandment that Paul, or Paul, I'm sorry, that Moses was giving the people, it was abundantly clear. It was plain. It was, it was direct. Verse 12, It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it? And do it. Verse 13, Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Verse 14, But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. If you look at the context, it is abundantly clear. We're not talking about the Messiah. We're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about the commandments that Moses gave the people. We're talking about the law. 
I mean, if you look at verse 10 as well, it talks about the commandments and statutes which are written in, the, in this book of the law. So that's abundantly clear. Now, if you want to hang on to that, you can. I want you to read now with me in Romans 10 and maybe just go back and forth and compare. Watch how Paul uses this quotation. Romans 10, 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? Now watch, when Paul puts the parentheses there, he's showing you how he is using Moses' words as a description of the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul is not saying that Moses intended to teach this lesson. He's just using the verse, verses that Moses gave us as a way of describing the righteousness that comes by faith. So watch the parentheses. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Right, so Paul's using this to illustrate his point. Christ has already come down. So it's not as if we have to go up there and fetch him. He's already come down. He's made it abundantly clear. He's revealed it to us. Verse 7, Or who shall descend into the deep? Now, in Deuteronomy, this is where Moses said, you don't have to go over the sea. Now, another way of referring to the sea is to say the deep. Look how Paul uses it. Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. You see how Paul's almost allegorizing this a little bit, but he's doing it simply to make the point to describe righteousness that comes by faith. So we don't have to go up in heaven and fetch Christ. He's come down and made it available. We don't have to go down into the grave or into the underworld to bring Christ back. He rose again. The Spirit of God brought him back. And he appeared to, to many after his resurrection. So that was made abundantly clear. It's been plainly revealed. Verse 8, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. It's near thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. And then Paul's conclusion, that is the word of faith which we preach. So what, what Moses said, when Moses said it, applied to the law and it applied to the people of Israel. Paul is making the point that what Moses said, just that small little snippet of it, it applies very nicely and fits nicely the description for receiving righteousness by faith. The word of faith which we preach. It is something that has been evidently revealed. It's, it's obvious. It's open. Nothing's hidden or mysterious about it. It's now been revealed. And then verse 9, another salient verse, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is the word of faith. Right? When we're talking about the word of faith, we're talking about what should you believe. List it out. What should I, what do I have to know? What do I have to believe in order to be saved? And Paul says, you, you have to believe and confess the Lord Jesus. And in, in, in some versions of the Bible, some other translations, it says you have to confess Jesus is the Lord. It's, it's two ways of saying one thing, basically. When you confess the Lord Jesus, you're saying, not just confessing Jesus, right? Uh, any atheistic historian would say that there was a man named Jesus. So to confess Jesus isn't enough, but to confess him as the Lord, what you're saying is that everything Jesus said about himself is true. All of the claims of divinity, of offering salvation, and him being the only way, you are, you are claiming and believing that it's true. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Now, why is that important? Why does Paul focus in on that? If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then that means, that means you believe Jesus was sinless. If you believe that Jesus was sinless, then you need an explanation. Why did a sinless man die? The wages of sin is death. But, but Jesus was sinless. That's why God was able to raise him from the dead. But then the, the big question is, why would a sinless man die to begin with? He obviously was not dying for his own sin. It's the only logical outcome. So by believing in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, to believe in the resurrection, if you understand it properly, you are 
you have an understanding that Jesus died sacrificially, that he died on the behalf of someone else, on the behalf of you personally as a sinner. Now notice in verse 8, Paul mentions two parts of a man, his mouth and his heart. Now remember, he's quoting, he's using Moses' words from Deuteronomy 30. And that's why in verses 9 and 10, Paul will refer to the heart and the mouth again. He refers to both parts. And these two parts are linked, right? The heart and the mouth. Biblically speaking, they are linked. Jesus taught us this. We studied it a couple weeks back. Matthew 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you do believe Jesus is the Lord, the Lord, not a Lord, the Lord. And when the heart believes it, the confession is going to be made. So verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. But then if that belief is in the heart, you can't help but have it come out of your mouth as well. Now, some people, I, when I was a new Christian, man, they made a big fuss over this and said, if you pray and ask God to save you, then that prayer is a good work, and you are trusting that good work to save you. So therefore, you should never pray and ask God to save you. You should just believe silently in your heart. And then they would turn to verses like this and really explain their way around what it says. I think all of you know verse 13 by heart. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It really caused people a lot of trouble for a while to understand what was going on. Remember, Paul is, he started with the template of Moses' words. And now he's using this connection of heart and mouth. Guys, we, we don't believe that Repeating a sinner's prayer saves you. It is, it, it, yes, it is in the heart. It is what you truly, genuinely believe in the heart. And I believe the moment that you submit yourself in your heart, that very moment, that umblick, Jesus comes in and the process of, of salvation takes place in a man's heart. Probably before he even gets it out of his mouth that he believes all that. Right? But... The point still stands that if a man believes in his heart, then something is going to happen with the mouth. Confession will be made. Uh, take, take your Bible. Come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me show you this, this verse. This is a great verse for this. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 13. Say, Brother Mike, do I have to pray a sinner's prayer? Do, do I have to say a certain thing in order to be properly saved? No. I know lots of people... When they, when they want to get saved, I have heard so many guys, hundreds, hundreds of people, I've heard them pray, and their prayers are confusing. They don't know what to say. They've never talked to God properly. They just know that they want to be free of their sin. They're tired of their old life. They want to be a new creature in Christ. And when they're crying out to God, it just sounds like a mess. And they don't even know how to explain what they're experiencing. They struggle to, to find the right words for it. So the, I don't think there's any uh, recited prayer that you need to go through in order to be properly saved. You need to genuinely, genuinely understand and believe the gospel from your heart. But if you genuine believe, genuinely believe it, then you're not going to be ashamed to confess it. You will fess up to the fact that you're saved. Look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 13. Paul says, we having the same spirit of faith, an attitude of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. So there's going to be this obvious connection. If you believe it, then you're going to say something about it. Come back to Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture saith, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, Verse 16, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So that, that tells us when Paul is speaking about confessing, he admits that this is the step after believing. Right? If you believe, then you're not going to be ashamed of it. 
at the end of Romans 9, Paul already quoted this actually. Romans 9 verse 33, at the very end of the verse, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So you won't want to hide it. You're going to be so glad that you got saved, it will come out of your mouth. It may not be. This confession that we're talking about in verses 10, 11, uh, 9, 10, 11, it's not necessarily a sinner's prayer. Right? Verse 13 you might see as that, but verse 9, 10, and 11, this is somebody standing up after he's believed and saying, I believe that. And I'm so glad I believe that. They're not going to be embarrassed about it. Uh, this reminds me to say, you know, we, whenever we talk about evidence of salvation, it is true that if a, when a man gets saved, there should be a change in his life. There, there are obviously going to be a change in his attitude. There should be a change in, in how he acts, how he talks. All of that should, should change. But, you know, that change sometimes takes a little bit of time to set in. Very rarely does somebody get saved and then the next day, boom, they've overcome everything. I mean, realistic. I know there's a big change. And I know for some people it's more drastic than others. But the first evidence, not discounting that other stuff because it's important, but the first evidence is that the man needs to have the right profession. Profession. Now, I get it. You can't just take the profession and that's all there is to it. Right? Because with what he's saying, you do need to match it up with the other evidence and say, well, is it consistent? Then you can have assurance. Assurance. But, how about this situation? Somebody lives a clean life, tries to do right, helps people, gives to charity, feeds the poor, takes their own coat off, gives it to somebody who's cold. I mean, this a genuinely good, good guy as far as good guys go. And then you ask him, sir, why are you doing this? And he says, well, I'm an atheist. And I think that when I die, I'm just going to die, and that's all there is to it. But I think the best way to live my life is to be helping people. It makes me happy to help people. So that's why I'm going out of my way to live uh, in a way that I think would be acceptable to society. And that's why he does all these good things. <laughs> See, if you just looked at the fruit, you'd say, man, that guy might be saved. But then when you listen to the profession, you say, okay, no, 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 that guy can't be saved. Right? He, he is establishing his own righteousness, but that's it. Now, I'm, I'm just creating a hypothetical case. My point is, you have to have a confession of faith. There has to be a profession that you have received the Lord Jesus. So we can't discount this. We have to weigh this in whenever we're considering, is this person saved or not? Now, verse 12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Remember, Paul's focus in these chapters is primarily Israel. But when it comes to this, God has evened the playing field. The, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. From, to every people group, regardless of their background, they have the same offer. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. What an outstanding verse. The same Lord, He's rich unto all that call upon Him. So in the Old Testament, God worked differently but when it came to Jews and Gentiles. Greek, when it says Greek, that, that's the Hellenized. Those are, let's say, uptown Gentiles, if you want to think of it that way. But it's just a fancy way of referring to Gentile culture back then. In the Old Testament, the Jews had to walk in the light of the law. And the Gentiles were expected to walk in the light of their conscience. So God, God knew that the two people groups, if I can break it down just into two, that they had different amounts of light. And God factors that in when he, when he judged their deeds. But now, the, the Lord is offering the same richness to everybody. Now, I, I'm just going to go through this list quickly. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, it talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And just through reading the book of Ephesians and Colossians, you can come up with all of this. I'll let you just read through the New Testament and find all of the riches that are available. But you read about the riches of His grace, of His glory, of His mercy, of His love, 
of full assurance, of understanding, of knowledge, of wisdom, and of the words of Christ. You see, in Luke 16, verse 11, Jesus spoke about the true riches, not money, not earthly wealth, not possessions. Those things I just listed, true riches. And all of that, the Lord... (laughs) all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's made available to Jew or Greek. Anybody that humbles himself and says, God, please, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Please save me. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I hope that you have that verse memorized. I hope you've used it a hundred times over. I hope you'll continue to show it to sinners. It's a great verse to show a sinner what he needs to do in order to be saved. You say, well, does this verse then command us we have to pray? You know what? We we don't have to pray out loud, but, but a sinner does have to acknowledge to God that he wants mercy, even if that is his heart crying out, right? Maybe... We cannot hear it audibly, but that sinner from his heart needs to make a connection with God and say, God, this is what I need. Jesus pulled this out of people. They said, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And Jesus would say, what will you that I should do unto you? Right? He wants to hear that sinner say, and again, whatever words he wants to put to it, even if it's just from the heart, but it needs to be genuine. Needs to be genuine. Now, starting in verse 14, Paul is going to explain how we reach all people with this knowledge of of the righteousness of God. And I'm going to say he takes us down a walk, takes us for a walk on on logic lane, on the lane of logic. I mean, this, it just makes sense. He's going to start backtracking. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You're not going to cry out and say, please save me, if you don't believe that that person can save you. So before the calling out or the confessing happens, there has to be belief. Then he goes another step back. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Well, that makes sense. Why would you trust somebody if you know nothing about them? And then he takes it another step back. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, that makes sense. How are you going to hear about it if there's nobody there to pass on that knowledge? So this is just logical, rational thinking. And then he takes it one step back. And how shall they preach except they be sent? That makes sense. Why would that guy be going around telling everybody about this Savior if if he hadn't first been commissioned to do it, if he hadn't been given this responsibility? By the way, we've all been given this ministry of reconciliation to bring sinners to God. So in verse 15, he, he concludes it with this verse of Scripture. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. He's quoting there Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Now, when you go back and read the context of Isaiah 52, it's it's not talking about uh, somebody going and preaching the gospel today. But it is talking about good news. They're publishing salvation in Zion, it says in the cross-reference. But again, Paul is using the verse because it describes perfectly what's going on now in the church age. We are taking the gospel of peace to sinners around the globe and telling them how to be reconciled to God. Why are their feet beautiful? It's not as if they physically get transformed. They're beautiful because they are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 and verse 15. Those feet that run swiftly around the globe. Now, Verse 16, Paul's going to clear up what might be a misconception. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. So just because someone was sent, they preached, the sinner heard, it doesn't mean that because they heard the message, now they're saved. Just because the light shined upon them, does not mean that they received that light. It is possible to reject it. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, Isaiah saith, 
Lord, who hath believed our report? He's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 1. Now notice in this context, we're still talking about Jew, Gentile, everyone, which tells us something about Isaiah 53, that it's not a Jewish chapter. Isaiah 53 has a very global reach to it. We don't have time to get into and explore the depths of that, but it's, it's a fascinating chapter, as you well know. But understand that it's not just talking to Israel. Isaiah 53, there's something in that for the entire world. They've not all obeyed the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? What does the gospel demand of us? There are certain denominations of Christianity that use this verse to say, you see, it's not enough to simply put faith in Jesus. You have to also be baptized. You have to do good works. You have to change. You have to clean. And they, they add a long list and say, you have to do all of these things to obey the gospel. And then you'll be saved. But this verse makes it clear to obey the gospel means you believe the report. Do you see how Paul links that? They've not all obeyed the gospel. Where did they fail? They did not believe our report. Who hath believed our report? So to obey the gospel, it demands faith. That's what it demands. Now that faith will and should result in a change and in good works and all of that. But the point is clear. Just because you heard it doesn't mean you're saved. You have to also believe it. You have to accept that message. Verse 17, Paul is going to summarize what he gave us in verses 14 and 15. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's a very nice short way of saying everything that he just explained. What's the process of getting this faith, this knowledge of God's righteousness and how it can be received? What's the process? In order to have faith, you've got to hear it. And in order for it to be heard, God had, God had to reveal that word. Right. So it's just taking us through that process again. Now, let, let me clear something up here. Because the word faith, it's a shame, but it, it can be tricky. Only because of our misunderstandings of it. When we talk about faith, some people, it's a semantical issue. Some people mean it like this. Faith is the ability to believe. Now, I think the word can be used like that. Do you have faith? Are you able to believe this? I, I, even in the Bible, I think it's used that way sometimes. But the word faith also means what you believe. Now, do you understand the difference? When we talk about you need faith in order to believe, it's not as if you do, or I'm sorry, you need faith in order to be saved. We're not saying that you are incapable of believing and therefore God has to come down, flip a switch in you, regenerate you, give you the ability to believe, that is to give you faith, and then you can believe. That is not, that is not a biblical teaching. Garrett touched on this in Ephesians chapter 2. When we talk about God giving someone the gift of faith or when uh, faith coming by hearing, that is, God shows a sinner, this is what you should believe. It's not that God is giving him the ability to believe. Every human, every human being has that ability. That's what it means to have a soul, at least in part. The fact that you have a human soul means that you are able to willingly choose things. That is a function of the soul, which, by the way... Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How do you lose your soul? How do you lose yourself? That's what it says in Luke. How do you lose yourself? When you are cast into the lake of fire, that soul is no longer able to choose. There's, no more, there's nothing else to choose from. Final choice. They rejected Christ, or they rejected the truth, whatever it was that they needed to believe, right? Depending on when they lived. They rejected it. So I, I don't want to go too far talking about this idea of faith, but the ability to believe, we all have that. That's part of being human. God has given the human race permission to choose. But now what to believe? That faith comes by hearing, and that hearing comes by the Word of God. God has to tell us what to believe. 
then when we accept what God has told us, we believe the report, we have the right relationship with God. Now, verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Now, they, humanity, talking about Jew and Greek, everybody. Have they not heard? Has God not made the knowledge uh, knowledge about himself, has he not made this accessible to the human race? Yes, verily, verse 18. Their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul is quoting from Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19. I'm going to turn there quickly. You can as well if you'd like to. Psalm 19 verse 4 is where he's quoting. And in this passage, you're, you're familiar with it, right? Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That's not a Jewish thing. Every culture, every people group has access to, to creation. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Creation preaches a message. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the son, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The heat of the sun, the light of the sun, it touches everyone. The point and the reason Paul quotes that is to say, the light of the knowledge of God, the, the idea that there is a God, His eternal power and Godhead. Remember Romans 1 verse 20? That has been manifested to everyone through creation. So every person is able to figure out there is a Creator just by studying creation, by watching the sun come up and go down over and over again. He says it, it tells you something. The heavens declare the glory, the majesty of God. Now, that's the general message that it sends. There is a Creator. There is a God. But, there, I want to say there's a hidden message in it. Now, that hidden message got revealed when Jesus came. Every day, the Bible says the Son is like a bridegroom, and, and, he, and he runs a race, right? That bridegroom comes out and runs a race. You know Jesus is the bridegroom. And... For 33 years, he ran his race. And, and at the apex, at the height of Jesus' time on earth, when he's 30 years old, he gets baptized and he starts doing miracles and he reveals the glory of God and he shines bright. But then at the age of 33, he's starting to go down and they nailed him to a cross and the blood began to run and they whipped him and he, he was a bloody mess. As the sun goes down, it turns blood red. And as Jesus went down, he's covered in blood and he goes down. And then he's buried, but then he comes back up. Shines bright. Every day, God's creation preaches the gospel. Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection every day. I, it's a fantastic hidden message God put into, into creation. So everybody has access to a knowledge of God. Verse 19, Romans 10, 19. But I say, did not Israel know? Well, what was Israel supposed to know? What is the question that Paul's dealing with in chapters 9, 10, and 11? Now that God has allowed Gentiles into the plan, and they are fellow citizens in the household of God, they are on equal footing with the Jew, what does this say about Israel? Now, a lot of Jews were bothered by this. A lot of Jews, that's why they persecuted Paul. You remember, that's why on a few occasions they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus would say, there are Gentiles that will come into the kingdom while some of you Jews will be kicked out. That shouldn't have been surprising. Israel should have known that God wanted to bring the Gentiles also into the kingdom. There are verses throughout the Old Testament that showed this. So what was going on, the situation in the early days of the church with, with Israel being rejected by God as a nation and turning to the Gentiles, that shouldn't have surprised anyone, right? Israel should have known that God wants to bring the Gentiles in, and Israel should have also known that if they continue to reject God's 
legitimate offer of truth and righteousness that he is going to punish them. So Israel should have known. They should have been clued in on this. It, it shouldn't have caught any of them by surprise. So he gives a couple verses to back this up. First, Moses saith. He's going to quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Now, when Moses is saying this, right, this is Deuteronomy 32, so we're talking 1450 B.C., there are Gentile nations that would later conquer the people of Israel, the Babylonians, uh, Media, Persia. They weren't even legitimate kingdoms at that time. But God would allow these Gentiles to come in, invade Israel, conquer Israel, and rule over them in their own land. And in so doing, provoke them. It would provoke the Jews. It would, it would poke at them and get their attention and say, Listen, don't you see that God is punishing you for how you've been acting? Now, the provoking went a step further when you get to the New Testament. Now, it's not that he's allowed the Gentiles to conquer the Jews and, and rule over them in a kingdom. Now, God has elevated the Gentiles and put them on equal footing, calling them also his beloved and calling them uh, a chosen people, right? They're chosen in Christ. That is uh, provoking Israel in an even greater way to say, how could God accept them just like he does us? Je Jesus pointed this out. He said, I have other sheep that I need to bring into the fold. The Jews should have known this. This shouldn't have been surprising. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I... I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying. That's a contradictory. Gainsaying people. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, which is a very interesting passage. We just don't have time to plumb the depths of it uh, now. But let me just walk you through this. In verse 20, I was found of them that sought me not. So the Gentiles, right, generally speaking, as, as, as their individual people groups, as nations, they were not seeking after the true God. They, were, they made their own gods. And yet, and yet, the truth of God was still offered to them. Now, the way God originally intended for this to happen, plan A, Messiah comes, Israel receives him, and this receiving of the Messiah elevates the nation of Israel. All the Gentiles see this great nation and flow into it. That, that was the plan, right? But the way that it's worked out, these Gentiles that really had no use for the God of the Bible, now because of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, people that aren't looking for missionaries go out and find them. Christians go out and witness to them. So we can see verse 20 being fulfilled, I want to say in this plan B way, but it's also legitimate fulfillment of the verse. In verse 21, But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. God continually... Man, that looks really weird when I stretch my hands towards you. God was stretching forth his hands, offering these people a chance to repent, and they continually rejected it. That is why it should not be surprising to see what was going on in Paul's day, to see Israel being turned away temporarily, and for God to be extending mercy to the Gentiles. They should have known that this was coming. All right, we're going to stop there for the night. I hope that was clear enough for you. Uh, as always, I'm going to recycle this just quickly and see if there's any questions. And if there's not, then uh, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll close for the night. All right. I don't see, I don't see any other questions. So we'll go ahead and pray. I appreciate you joining us tonight for the service. Father, thank you this evening for the unsearchable riches of Christ. Thank you for the grace, the glory, the wisdom, the knowledge. Thank you for making your righteousness available to us. 
Lord, the reason that we believed the report is not because of any goodness in ourselves, but it, it was because the offer was so good. It's because you're so good to do that for us. God, I pray for the people around us. Might, might you give us, as Paul had, a heart filled with desire to see people saved. Help us to pray for our fellow countrymen, for our neighbors, for these fellow Pachonians. God, please allow us to reach more people with the gospel. They cannot believe if they haven't heard and they can't hear without a preacher. God, help us to be busy about your business. Please have your hand upon these people that have joined in tonight. Might the seeds of the Word of God sink deep and bring forth abundantly. I pray that you please let us gather again soon, or even if it's around this video, uh, around a video, just to hear the Word of God. Thank you. Thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.